You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. God, we are grateful for the day today that is a gift from you. And we ask that you would open our hearts to the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of your word, God. May we see more than just marks on a page, more than black type on a white page, God. May we see and experience truth. Father, as we settle and quiet our hearts, Lord, just open them up to receive your word. We thank you because we know that you are faithful to answer that promise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, open up your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to uh, the book of Habakkuk. This is the third and final message from the prophet Habakkuk. Three chapters, three messages. We're moving right along. Other scriptures were only that easy. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning, and while you get there, uh, I want to begin um, an introduction by asking a question. God is a God of mystery. Would you all agree with that? A lot of yeses. God is a God of mystery. And with any mystery, there is necessarily a gap or a breach that exists, something that separates what we know from what we don't know something that we don't have to what we need or think that we need. Something separates from where we are to where we want to be or where we need to be. And there are mysteries in all of life. Some are small, little mysteries, ones that we see. We like to read in books. Some of you like to read mystery novels or or suspense thrillers and movies, mysteries. Some of the mysteries are like, why... The dishes in my house don't seem to make it from the table or another room into the dishwasher, but three feet from the dishwasher on the counter. That is a mystery of cosmic scale that perhaps some of you older saints can illuminate me on because it is a mystery indeed. Truly, some mysteries, though, are big and cosmic in scale, are they not? They're they're mysteries like heaven and hell and creation and life and eternity and the mystery of God. Big mysteries. But for the believer in Jesus, these are less mysteries and more staggering realities in our lives, right? There's an element of mystery there, yes, but they're also staggering realities. Realities, but whatever you call them on the other end of these huge, cosmic, mysterious, staggering reality spectrum, on the other end of that is the reality of how you and I as individuals process, understand, and live our lives in light of those mysterious realities. Does that make sense? Staggering mysteries on one end and how we engage them on the other end. And Sometimes I personally engage those mysteries, those cosmic realities, well. I engage them with thoughtfulness and with passion and with reverence to God. But if I'm honest, often they're met with what John Piper calls the low intensity of our own passions. The low intensity of my own passion is how often those staggering mysteries are met. So you have these huge cosmic realities 
of life on one side and on the other side, paltry attempts, not to just simply want to bridge the gap, but to even muster up enough passion in ourselves to even care. Have you been there before? Sometimes we're like, I don't even care. I don't have enough in me to even open my scripture or if I'm here to even listen and to engage There's a quote that says, if there's a God, he has a lot of explaining to do. That's a quote that's often associated with people that don't believe in God, but in truth, it, it resonates in our own hearts as well. God is a mysterious God, and his ways are not our ways. That's what Habakkuk is struggling with. He's struggling with this idea that God is using a greater evil to judge a lesser evil. And he's saying, God, my finite mind cannot wrap itself around this. I need you to illuminate me. And if you haven't been with us the last two weeks as we've preached from the prophet Habakkuk, that is his deal. The kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom has been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom is about to be swallowed up by the king of Babylon along with the Assyrian Empire. And so Habakkuk is trying to make sense of this mystery because he knows that God's judgment that he's about to mete out on the Assyrians is going to affect God's people in a very real way. God is a God of judgment. But as we've already heard this morning, he is a God of hope. And Habakkuk is saying, God, where is the hope in this? Where is the hope in this, God? Last week, Jesse did a wonderful job of preaching through chapter 2, which is God's answer to Habakkuk. He's asking these questions in the form, really, of a complaint, something we can all resonate with, I think. At least I can, if I'm honest. And God's answer is summed up in chapter 2, verse 4, and it begins by saying, Behold, his king or his soul is puffed up, he being the king of Babylon. His soul is puffed up, it's not, it's not upright within him. And as we read on in chapter 2, we, we read more about how wicked the king is and how God promises to judge him. And it goes into some detail in chapter 2, all about the king and how wicked and horrible he is. And Jesse pointed something out. I loved it. He said, the people of God get one part of one sentence in all of this. And here it is. The righteous shall live by faith. In all of this, God says, trust me, Habakkuk. Trust me. The words of the prophets are words of judgment and the words of hope. That's all of the prophets. They're words of judgment, but also words of hope. But that's not just for the time back then. It's also for right now. Sam said it when he preached in in Malachi, when he started that. He said, if there was a prophet in your life, what would he be telling you? That has stuck with me. If there is a prophet in your life... What message would he be telling you? What message of judgment would there be? And what message of hope would there be? And I think we get hung up on the message of judgment and realize he has given us hope in Jesus, and that is solved. God's people have always been called to live by faith. Faith in God. And we must constantly be examining ourselves before a holy God to live a life of repentance and faith in God. That's the rhythm of the believer, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. And that's what all of this is meant to stir up in our hearts. The judgment of God is a very real thing. 
But he has made a way, and through repentance and faith, he reconnects us to life in Jesus Christ. We need, all of us, we need a growing awareness of God's holiness and a growing awareness of our own sin. That sounds familiar to a lot of us because of some of the stuff that we've read in discipleship. That's the ultimate chasm. That's the ultimate mystery. That's the ultimate breach that has occurred, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. That's the ultimate bridge that can only be crossed by, the, by Jesus Christ, by the cross of Christ. And we are given a gift of faith that accomplishes that. Jesus echoes the answer given to Habakkuk when he says in answering the disciples' question, they, they asked Jesus this question, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Because we all like to do stuff for God, don't we? Same question we ask him in our lives all the time. Jesus, what must we be doing to do the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him. That you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus says, God has given you a gift. Use it. Exercise that gift that he's given you. If we receive a gift from someone and we just let it sit in the corner and collect dust, how does that make the giver feel? Exercise the gift. Chapter 2 of Habakkuk ends by saying, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is on the throne, Habakkuk. He's got this. Your job, Habakkuk, is the work of believing that staggering reality. Keep silent, take account of who you are, and know that I am God. Believe, Habakkuk. Believe and live by the very faith I have given you, church. This is a transcultural word. This is a supernatural gift to us that spans Time and eternity from Habakkuk's day to our day today. And that brings us to our passage this morning. In chapter 3 of Habakkuk, I'm going to read this for you this morning. Follow along with me. It begins in verse 1 by saying a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigiona. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and he measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath 
from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place as the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And then Habakkuk, concludes he says i hear and my body trembles my lips quiver at the sound rottenness enters into my bones my legs tremble beneath me yet i will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vine The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God is the Lord. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. To the choir master with stringed instrument. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 3. Let's, let's unpack this just a little bit this morning. First of all, we read in chapter 1 this strange little word, um, Shigiona. And I just took that from the ESV app and the way they pronounced it. That's, so that's how I pronounced it. Uh, it's fun to say. Shigiona. It's, it's a psalm. It's a prayer. This is a... The whole point is Habakkuk's response to God is a prayer, is praise and worship. And really, when we encounter God, isn't that the right response? To praise and worship Him? So right out of the gate, we get this idea. Verse 2, Habakkuk says that he's heard the report. What report has he heard? Well, it's the report of what God has done for the people of Israel to rescue them out of bondage in Egypt. That's what's fleshed out in verses 3 through 7. So he remembers that story of that account, and he says, Lord, revive and reveal once again your judgment on on our enemies. Just like you did against the Egyptians, Lord, do that now in this day. Do it today, Lord. Revive. But then he says, in your wrath, remember mercy. Now, why would he say that against the enemies of God and the enemies of the people of Israel? He says, remember mercy in your wrath. Well, we need to remember, as we said, this prophecy is about God's wrath against evil, but it's also his wrath on the evil that existed in Israel's heart. Because ultimately what got them into that mess is their own heart. And it's also the evil that is in our hearts today. And so we cry out to God just like Habakkuk and say, God, we deserve judgment. But in your judgment, render mercy on us, God. Render mercy on us, God. 
and remember it. Verses 3 through 15, this big section, is really describing God as a divine warrior. Habakkuk describes in these verses this manifestation of God as if God is, a, is tangible to the human senses. Right? These verses describe uh, what God has done to rescue the people from Egyptian bondage, as we said. That's the allusion to pestilence and plague. What he will do as well to the Babylonian king, and what he will ultimately do to vanquish all evil once and for all. And the, the gist of all of that is that God's judgment will be thorough. God will win. God will win the day. So let's look a little bit closer at these texts, at these verses before we get to the end here. Verses 3 through 7, just briefly, I'm going to hit on it because we really already talked about it. Um, it's, this is an account of what, uh, what God did in the people of Israel to, to rescue the people of Israel from the Egyptian bondage. The term um, Mount Paran and Timon, that is the place where God gathered Israel after the exodus as he led them out. And so this is a reference to that event. Verses 8 through 11 describes how God's absolute authority is cosmic in its scope. And it's embodied, I think, in verse 10. Look at it with me. Verse 10 says, The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. It's, it's the oceans, the rivers personified as if they're actually human. Let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced the power of nature? Yeah. Some of you perhaps have been in a hurricane. I hope not. Probably some of you have been in tornadoes. And I'm sure we've all had experience in bad storms How about this? You ever been to the ocean and you're out waiting in the ocean on your little boogie board and you look up and you're way far away from the shore. You didn't realize how far away you got because of the power, the subtle power of the ocean draws you away and draws you way on down and where you're living is way up there. It's the power of the of the sea, the power of the ocean. I read recently of an account of a man who was in the fairly shallow end of the ocean playing, and a wave came up, not a huge one, but a wave powerful enough to knock him over. He hit his head, broke his neck, and he died. It's the power of the deep. The power of the deep. Hurricanes. What comes after hurricanes? Storm surges. Eight, nine, ten, eleven feet storm surges that that are even worse than the hurricane itself. Tsunamis. The power of the deep. This is the deep that surrenders. This is the deep that says, I give up, God. I give up. This language is here to help us understand just how thorough and cosmic God's judgment will be and was. God will get total victory over sin and over evil. We need not worry. We need not fret. Verses 12 through 15, then, if 8 through 11 are more cosmic in nature, verses 12 through 15 are more historical. They're they're really centering more on God's judgment, specifically on the matter at hand, the king of Babylon. We hear language like, God marched through the earth in fury, threshing the nations in anger. He crushed the head of the house of the wicked, the king. Warriors were being killed with their own So more historical, more defined to the king of Babylon. Overwhelming in its decisiveness and finality. Overwhelming. But amidst all of this chaos, and amidst all of this language in verses 3 through through 15, 
the purpose of that we need not to forget. And it's a very important fact because I think it's easy for us to forget. We, we see what, what sometimes we get lost in the language, but we see and we understand this as God, his fury and his judgment on sin. But we must realize the purpose of all of this language of destruction is found in verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. This is what God is up to. He's up to preserving a remnant for redeeming a people for himself. And so we see Habakkuk's final response beginning in verse 16. He responds to all this. Now remember in chapter 2, verse 1, where Jesse started last week, um, Habakkuk takes a stand. He's on, he's on the, the tower there, and he's on the post, and he's watching, and he's waiting for God to respond to him. And then God responds in chapter 2. Now... We're reading about how Habakkuk becomes content for the fulfillment of the answer. So the vision that he was given is about to be fulfilled, and he's content to wait for that to happen. And so he says in verse 16, I hear, Lord, I hear, I'm listening, and my body, Lord, trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet... I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. You see, what has happened here in the course of chapters 1 and 2 going into chapter 3 is Habakkuk has matured in his faith. He's matured in his faith in God, and he submits to God. Mature faith or maturing faith always looks like something, doesn't it? It always looks like something, and what it looks like is submission. Maturing faith always looks like submission. Greater submission to God. And I would say it looks like greater submission to God as our Father. And that's a very important piece. We hear about the fury and the anger of God, and it's easy for us to think of him as off and distant. But God is our Father. And maturing faith looks like submitting to God as our Father. We cannot go and exist and be in the presence of God and not submit to him. That's what Sarah read about Isaiah 6 this morning. And if we're not submitting to God, then we're not beholding his glory. And if we're not beholding his glory, we won't submit to him. And if we're not beholding and submitting to God, can you really say your faith is maturing? That's a question for all of us. I think a key question is how are you maturing in your faith, in your understanding specifically as God as your father? I think we need to get very specific when we talk about growing in our faith and maturing in our faith is our understanding of who he is as our loving father. You may say to me, Craig, I'm vigorous in my pursuit of God. And I know some of you are. And you wouldn't say that out of pride at all, but just out of, I'm, I'm, I'm engaged. I'm actually pursuing God. And that might be so, but even the most passionate and driven person among us your, own, your passions will only take you so far. You must cry out to God as your Abba, as your Father. Submission to Him. Jesus' prayer that He told the disciples begins how? 
Our Father. Our Father. We sang that this morning. That is how we address God. Number one, our Father in heaven. The next time you pray, whether it's today, now, next minute, tomorrow, tonight, begin your prayer that way. Our Father. You spend time in that, you won't get to anything else, I guarantee it. You will spend time meditating and praying and just being absorbed by the idea of God as your Father. Life is about changes and transitions. Excuse me. Life is about changes and transitions. And we're all going through changes and transitions. School School is back in next month. Some of you are students and you'll be going back to school, hopefully up another level. Some of you are teachers. You'll be going back to deal with those kids hopefully up another level. Um, Some of us are engaged to be married. Some of us have new jobs, promotions. Some of us are praying about what a new job looks like. Should I get a new job? And when we go through these transitions and many, many more in our lives, this is when we should be most open to faith. During the times of transitions, this is when we need to be most open to the gospel. And here's why, because this is when God is trying to get our attention. Can I get an amen on that? Do we agree with that? Do we agree with that? When we're going through, God's always trying to get our attention, but when we are experiencing pressure points and transitions and uncomfortability, God's doing something in that, and he's trying to get our attention. And the reason I asked you if you believed in that, and if you do believe in that, if that's true of you as a believer in Jesus, think about this. It is all the more true in the people you know who don't know him. You see what I'm saying? That's why it's so important. They need to see your faith. They need to see how you react in times of transition as knowing God the Father. So they can say, what is it that you can, how can you handle this and I can't? What's so different about you that you can handle these transitions, these job changes, uh, births of new babies, and and handle these in a way that actually looks different? What is it about you? And you can then give them the reason for the hope that you have. God is trying to get our attention in those moments. The gospel itself is the essence of change, is it not? Life to death. Death to life. There's no bigger change than that. Being dead and coming to life. And even that concept of death to life gets turned upside down in the economy of Scripture because Christ brings us from death to life in order that we would what? Die to self. He wakes us up and brings us to life for the purpose of us then dying to ourselves. We don't like that. We like the death to life part, but the part about dying to self, that's something we resist. And if we resist change, then we're not resonating with the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's most famous quote was when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Listen, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When we fight change, it's painful, often. But submission to God's will in your life builds your faith. 
Greater submission builds your faith. Is it painful? Yeah, it is painful often, but it's a good and it's a necessary pain that has purpose in it. And that purpose is to test the genuineness of that faith, that it may result in praise and glory and honor and revelation of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1. If our goal is to be pain-free in this life, if our goal is to not be uncomfortable in this life, if our goal is to not be put out in this life, if our goal is to not be inconvenienced in this life, if our goal is to be not troubled in this life, then we are not accepting the call of the gospel in our lives. We're just not. Paul rejoiced in his sufferings. Paul rejoiced in his sufferings And he said, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. In the midst of his suffering, do you not think God or Paul was troubled in his spirit and probably asked God or complained a little bit to God? Three times he asked him to take away the thorn. God said, my grace is sufficient. You don't need that taken away. I've already given you what you need to deal with that. He rejoices in his suffering. Now, the lacking, when he says lacking in Christ's affliction, let's be clear that the atoning work of Jesus does not lack in anything. When Jesus hung on the cross and died, it was finished. And our sins were atoned for, they were taken care of by God. What is missing, though, what Paul's getting at here in in this verse in Colossians when he says, what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. What's missing is the personal, the in-person presentation of Christ's sufferings to the people in the world that need to see that. You and me, as servants dying to self, submitting to God, showing the people of God what it looks like to be afflicted and have faith. The vision for Habakkuk has had its full effect. And without a visible means of support, he receives strength from God in whom he trusts. In verse 17, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Verse 18, he says, God is the Lord, God is God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes my me tread in high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This idea, have you ever seen, maybe not in person, but a mountain goat and how it navigates mountains? Sure-footed, right? That's the picture here. That goat is is innately has the innate ability because that's how God created that mountain goat to have sure footing in rocky places. And that's the point. God is our strength. It doesn't matter what kind of hills and valleys we're travailing up and down. Because of the foundation of Jesus, we are on sure footing. God has gifted us the faith to do that. Exercise that faith. When we lack, when we fail, when we struggle in times of need, during seasons of pain, in times of difficult transitions, listen, to rejoice in God in those times, to rejoice in God for who he is and not for what he has done for us is pure faith. That is an evidence of pure faith. When we can rejoice in God when things are bad instead of what he's done for us, which is what we typically want to do, 
We will rejoice, we'll rejoice in God for the gift that he's given us. Right? We'll, we'll point up to heavens when we hit a home run, and we'll do a Tim Tebow stand in the end zone when we score a touchdown. But what happens when we strike out? What happens when we get flattened like a pancake as we come around the end and the lineman flattens us? We still praise God in that. It's like a muscle that we exercise. To build muscle, there's pain involved. There's pain involved. There's discomfort involved. There's, there's struggle. There's strain. And often it's good to have someone come in and help us with our workout. It's mysterious. God works in the mysteries of life. And we're called, just like Habakkuk, to wait quietly and have faith in him. That's the song we sang. Father, you are all we need. If you sang that song, do you really believe that today? Do you really believe that the Father is all you need? Or are you looking elsewhere? God will provide the answers. But we need to make sure we're asking the right questions. The question isn't, when will this pain subside? When will I get relief? When will my personal struggle, my personal puzzle be resolved? That's not the question. That is not a wrong question, though. Because God wants to heal us. God wants to relieve us. That is his nature as our good father. He desires to heal. He desires to make all things new. But that's the point. That's what he's doing. But he's doing it in his time. He doesn't do it always in our time. And we need to look forward to the day that he will make all things new. And we need to point others and live as if that is true in our lives. Because people need to see that. So if that's not the question, what are the questions? I think there are two questions that we don't ask, but we should ask in the midst of life's mysteries and pain. The first one is, God, how are you transforming and conforming me into the image of Jesus? That's question number one. How are you transforming and conforming me to the image of your son, God? And the second one is, how then can Christ be exalted in the midst of of all the stuff that's swirling about me. When was the last time you asked someone in your life who is a believer that question, those questions? Or when was the last time they asked you those questions? How is God transforming and conforming you into the image of Jesus in these circumstances in your life? And how are you exalting Christ in those circumstances? We don't ask because we're afraid. Often we don't ask because we haven't built enough trust to be vulnerable and transparent, to actually ask those questions. And that's the point. If we're pleading the blood of Jesus and the spirit of the living God is within us, we're called to that as the people. And we are to engage in that in our church, in the life of our gospel communities. I think we're all guilty of saying, Jesus is the answer, but. Jesus is the answer, but I must do this. Jesus is the answer, but my circumstances are different. Jesus is the answer, but these people aren't doing what they should be doing, or they are doing something different. Folks, Jesus is the answer, period. It's not trite. It's not a cute saying. It's truth. Jesus is the answer. There are no buts. Habakkuk questioned God, and God answered. 
Habakkuk listened then to God, and listening looked like something. We say we're listening to God, but what does it look like? Well, for him, it looked like waiting quietly. We don't like that. Waiting quietly looked like embracing the need and the lack of a sufficient answer. We really don't like that. Embracing the need, the unknown, then turned into rejoicing in God, simply for who he is. We said a couple of weeks ago that the book of Habakkuk dealt with the concept of theodicy. If you guys remember that term, it's a fancy theological term that means if God is so loving, then why does evil exist? It's the age-old question, mysteries. Habakkuk's specific complaint to God was, why are you using a greater evil to judge a lesser evil? When the effects of that evil were going to be even worse on your people, God. These are your people, God. Why is this going to happen to your people? We can see why it's so confusing to the prophet. And God said, I'm doing a work in your day, Habakkuk, and you wouldn't believe it if I told you. You just need to live by faith. Exercise the gift I gave you, church. Exercise the, the gift of faith I've given you. Open that gift up and use it. Because there's ample opportunity to do that, and there's a world outside these walls that need to see that. We began today by saying that God is a God of mystery, and we all shook our heads and raised our hands. Maybe not everybody, but... but most of us, and those that didn't, I trust that you believe that God is a God of mystery. But as we close today, I want to submit to you that God is not so mysterious as we think he is. I said, we're just not asking the right questions. Turn to the book of Galatians. That's in the New Testament. The book of Colossians, as you get there, uh, chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, Paul gives this beautiful writing on the sufficiency, the utter sufficiency of the supremacy, the sufficiency, the preeminence of Christ in some things, in all things. And all means all. Christ is sufficient and he's preeminent in all things. That's chapter 1. Later in chapter 1 is where Paul talks about his sufferings for the, for, uh, for, for the sake of the church. He's filling up what is lacking in the physical representation to the church. And then Paul gets to chapter 2. And I want you to follow along with me carefully here because here's what he says. In chapter 2 he says, I want you to know, church, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all those who have not seen me face to face, that's you and that's me, by the way, that their hearts, that our hearts, church, this morning, our hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of what? God's mystery, which is who? Christ. All the riches are in Christ. God's mystery which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's our answer. He goes on to say in verse 6, Therefore, as a result of that staggering cosmic reality, 
as a result of that, as you received Jesus Christ, the Lord, walk in him, church, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. Listen to those words. Just as you were what? Taught. Just as you were discipled, abounding in what? Thanksgiving. That's an amazing passage. That will preach. And one day we will, because we will be in the book of Colossians in September. And we'll be able to preach through that. There's a lot there to unpack. Many of you have already studied Colossians, or are in the midst of it right now, because we gave that journal out at the end of last year. And I would really be interested to hear how God worked in your heart when you got to that verse. How did that hit you, verse 3 of chapter 2? And what did God stir up in your hearts? All of God's mysteries, all of God's mysteries culminate in Jesus Christ. That includes the answers to cosmic mysteries surrounding heaven and hell and creation and life and eternity. It includes the mystery that Habakkuk was struggling with, and it includes the mystery and the confusion and the pain and the questions and the puzzles in your life, in my life, whatever they are, All we have, guys, is Jesus. And all we need is Jesus. Let's rejoice in him. Let's pray. God, you are a good God. You are beyond our ability to understand. And yet you have given us the gift of faith. And you have given us Jesus Christ. He is all we need. All the mysteries are found and solved in him. All of God's mysteries are in Jesus Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ. And this holy word that we preach from and we read, Lord, has, been, has come to life in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the word made flesh. Lord, we thank you for that this morning. And as we respond to you, Lord, let us respond from that understanding. That Jesus is who he said he was. And that we need him every day, in every single way. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.